do a special five-part episode on the Simpsons today. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, Inc. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across all industries. With its knowledge of effective compliance and ethics programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this five-part series on the intricacies of suspension and disbarment, I'm joined by Rod Grandin. Rod is a managing director at Affiliated Monitors, and he's going to help us walk through what suspension and debarment is, but more importantly, why it needs to be studied, understood, and learned by the greater compliance community. We're going to take up five separate topics in this five-part series. Number one, what's the difference between criminal civil actions and suspension and debarment? Two, what's the actual difference between a suspension and a debarment? Three, what's the relationship to the FCPA and other matters to suspension and debarment. Four, what are factors considered as part of suspension and debarment present responsibility determination? And five, what are some of the remedies and responses under suspension and debarment? I know you'll find this fascinating series very useful for you as the compliance practitioner. This special five-part series on suspension and debarment is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. <clears throat> I continue my five-part exploration of suspension and debarment with Rod Grandin. Rod is the Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors, and today we're going to take up the uh, topic of present responsibility. What is it, and why does it matter? So, Rod, thank you again for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Rod, I've heard you use the phrase present responsibility a couple of times throughout this podcast series, and that phrase has a very distinct and unique meaning in the suspension and debarment world. Could you tell us what it is and uh, how that determination is made? All right. Present responsibility is sort of a buzzword. It's the underlying basis for an action involving uh, excluding a party from the federal marketplace through suspension or debarment. Yet, interestingly, the phrase is not defined anywhere in the regulatory structure. Um, and what it really falls down to is the discretion of the federal officials who have been empowered to exercise the suspension and debarment authority. But there are some common factors and guidelines out there that, that can help the, the uh, community understand what are some of the elements of suspension and debarment. And just to put this in a little better context, when an action is initiated, uh, it's generally based on facts that trigger one of the causes that are set forth in the regulations. Notwithstanding the fact that the evidence establishes the cause, in which in most cases there's generally no dispute that the cause has been proven by the appropriate burden of evidence, 
the question then floats to this one of notwithstanding the cause, is the contractor presently responsible? And in those cases, so in the first prong, is the cause established? That burden falls to the government. That evidentiary burden falls to the government. Once that burden is satisfied by the appropriate uh, level of evidence, then the burden shifts to the contractor to establish that it is presently responsible. So what, is, what does that mean? Well, there are several areas that you can look to for guidance. First of all, you can look to the Federal Acquisition Regulation, subpart 9.406-1, which calls out uh, roughly um, about 10 factors. And it starts at the top with effective standards of conduct and internal controls at the time the misconduct occurred. Uh, the second one is, did the contractor disclose the misconduct to the government? Thirdly, has the contractor investigated the matters and made those results available to the contractor? Has the contractor cooperated uh, with the government in terms of trying to work through the various challenges and the various remedies associated uh, with the misconduct and has appropriate corrective action take, been taken to include such things as disciplinary action, uh, an assessment of internal controls, policies, and procedures that were designed to either prevent or identify uh, misconduct, uh, and, um, you know, what, what can be done to strengthen that process? Is the contractor willingly embracing you know, the problem and pursuing an appropriate resolution. Um, has there been adequate time? You know, sometimes contractors will come in and say, look, we're, we've done everything we need to do, and it's been six months since the underlying misconduct. Um, you know, sometimes time is a factor in there as well. It takes time, particularly if a culture is bad. It takes time for a company to move its culture from sort of a, uh, a diseased culture to a fairly healthy culture. And I think most importantly, driving all of these considerations within the federal acquisition regulation factors is the notion of management recognition of the seriousness of the problem and their commitment to prevent recurrence of the problem. Um, these are the factors that are called out. And those factors that are in the federal acquisition regulation are generally the same factors that you find in the context of the U.S. sentencing guidelines, those guidelines that are used to assess uh, penalties and sentences associated with violations of criminal law. Uh, so there you again see the notion of having a written compliance uh, program, standards and procedures, accountability and oversight at the top, diligence in selecting and assigning staff, uh, monitoring and auditing of the ethics and compliance program, training, communications, incentives, disciplines, and again, prompt and appropriate response to suspected misconduct. And one other area that you can look for, the recent uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act guidance uh, put out by the Department of Justice, the 10 Hallmarks and Effective Compliance Program. These are all considerations that a suspending and debarring official will consider in the context of trying to assess present responsibility. Now, admittedly, a lot of this is uh, not going to be driven by empirical data. Um, it's going to be a, largely based on, you know, what is the contractor doing? What is it saying it's going to do? How does it 
come across in its dealings with the suspending and debarring official. Uh, in most cases, what I looked for or looked for when, in my role as the Air Force's suspending and debarring official was a willingness to engage by the contractor. And let me just offer an example of what I thought was a, a, probably some of the most exemplary conduct associated uh, with a major defense contractor. Um, I had been very familiar with this contractor's suspension and environment program and its commitment to compliance and ethics. I felt that the, this particular contractor, put it this way, I had no reason to believe this contractor or any of its operating divisions had any problems or, um, you know, that it was that it was basically one of the gold standards within the defense community. And yet, its chief compliance officer called me one day out of the blue, unprovoked, to let me know that the company had identified a multi-year kickback scheme within one of its smaller divisions, and that uh, part of this disclosure was, hey, we're in the process of making our mandatory disclosure as required by the federal acquisition regulation. We still don't know the facts. We don't know the circumstances. We're investigating it, but we know we've got a problem there. We will keep you advised. We will take appropriate corrective action. And do you have any questions? That was the first contact out of the box. That was a very uh, unusual approach for a contractor and, frankly, one that I believe exemplifies a responsible contractor. That is, taking a problem recognizing the problem, and moving out aggressively to reasonably deal with that problem and to deal with any concerns that might arise within its uh, government stakeholders, particularly within the acquisition context. Um, that type of behavior demonstrated management recognition and commitment. It recognized or it established that there were standards of conduct and controls in place. They were able to identify the problem. It took some years, but sometimes uh, fraud can be quite subtle within an organization. They disclosed the misconduct. They committed to fully investigating. And, oh, by the way, they did, and they gave me updates uh, throughout the process until final resolution was reached. Uh, to cut short my little story, at the end of the day, uh, notwithstanding a multi-year kickback scheme within one of the divisions of this company or one of the small operations within this company, I was satisfied that the company was presently responsible, that it had triggered and demonstrated all of these considerations and controls that we talked about, and I was able to take no action in that case. Um, that, that, that's, that's, I just offer as an example of what demonstrates present responsibility, but it has to be a commitment to ethics, and compliance, management recognition, and commitment to promoting integrity within uh, operations. Um, and this companies can help themselves by staying on top of their risk environment and making sure their controls, policies, and procedures are aligned with their risks. They can conduct internal assessments, either with internal resources or using external resources for a more objective view to find out what's going on from an ethics and compliance standpoint. And these are all considerations that contractors should consider using and doing. And frankly, it's all scalable. It's not just within the province of the large contractors. It can be scaled down and inexpensively uh, exercised and adopted by smaller contractors as well.
So, Rod, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I've been visiting today with Rod Grandin, Rod, a Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors, and we've been taking up the topic of present responsibility. I hope you'll join us tomorrow for our final part in this five-part exploration of suspension and debarment, where we take up the topic of remedies and compliance. Rod, thank you so much. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode. This special five-part series on suspension and debarment is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.